0: You are listening to Keystone's Stock Talk Podcast, Episode 2. Today we kick off with Aaron's review of the movie The Big Short and a little explanation of shorting stock in general. I get off on a rant about energy, stock, and Bay Street Darling Crescent Point, and in our Stars and Dogs of the Week we review WestJet and A&W. The stock, not the root beer, although I think Aaron is jugging a pint at this moment. Now, if you're, it's your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. The podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us at, on Twitter, at Keystocks, and on Facebook. Now, let's dig into the show. I would like to welcome again my co-host, Keystone's senior equity analyst, father of one, and a man who I can personally confirm has just completed his full back tattoo of Mr. Warren Buffett, Aaron Dunn. Thank you, Ryan. Aaron, we were just talking about a movie you saw over the weekend uh, about the financial crash and some of the factors that created it. Can you get into that?
1: Yes, yeah, we were. So the movie is is The Big Short. It was a big Hollywood production last year. It had Brad Pitt, uh, Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, and lots it. oh, of big names. So
0: Aaron's most favorite, people would heard Aaron's heard, heard, right? heard yeah. of it.
1: Yep, all my favorites. Um, you might might not have seen it, but you probably heard of it. Basically, it's a movie about the last couple of years before the market crashed in two thousand eight, and just um, the situation leading up to that event, and a small group of people that um, had the foresight to see how foolish the market was behaving and and how ridiculous and unsustainable it was, so they, they found a way to profit from the crash. Um, like most movies, it was a little bit off on some of the numbers and details, but I think that the writers did a really good job of using, using analogies to explain to regular people, non-financial people, what was going on at the time and, and teach them about the products that, uh, that were causing basically causing the bubble, um, which of course eventually burst.
0: Excellent. So, would you would you recommend the movie? Was the acting great, or would you recommend it just to somebody who would want to learn more about what happened uh, during the crisis and the crash? <laughs>
1: the acting was uh, the acting was fine. The acting certainly certainly did its job there. I would recommend it to somebody who just wants you know a, a nice entertaining overview of, of what happened. It's 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 actually a little bit depressing when you think about it, but it's important that people people understand um, what was going on and. And some of the signs that other people were seeing that, that caused them to come to the conclusion that, that it was not a sustainable um, situation. So yeah, there's there's certainly uh, there's certainly a lot of people can, can learn from a movie like that. I, I don't think that people need to take it so far to think that, you know, all of the stock market is bad. I think that's the impression that some people get when they see movies like that. That's not the case. It's 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 really the it's it's really when people gravitate towards the really complicated products that things get out of hand. So
0: Okay, well, then, other than, I guess, Brad Pitt's vacant blue eyes, what are the important takeaways that you had from the film? I guess you could start by explaining the title, the big short, to our listeners. I I assume that these, the characters in the film, uh, somebody shorted the the stock market or the housing market at that time. I don't know, I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment. You can go into it.
1: They essentially shorted the the housing market and through that, the, the entire US economy at the time. So... For those people that aren't familiar with what shorting is, it's basically a bet that, that a certain um, security is going to is gonna go down in, in price. So the transaction that, that most any investor is familiar with is, is going long. That's when you buy a stock because you think that it's going to go up. So you can buy, say, a stock in a fictional company, just as an example, XYZ. I don't think that's a real company. Um, say XYZ is trading at $10. You think it's going to go up, so you go long. You buy... You buy shares in, in, in the company, maybe it goes up to $15, $20. Then you sell your shares and you make money and it, and it turns out to be a real, really good trade. And Shorting works the exact opposite way. So you might want to short XYZ if you think that it's overvalued or you, that it's worth significantly less than its $10 share price. And the way you would do this is through your brokerage. You would borrow shares from another investor's account and you would pay a fee for this to the broker, of course. They don't do anything without fees. Um, but you would t- you'd borrow these shares, and then you would sell them on the market at the current price for $10 per share. And then that money would be placed into an account and, and basically held there. You'd wait for the share price to decline if you were correct in, in your short, um, and then you would cover the short. So if, say, the share price were, declined, were to decline to $3, you would take that money that you made from selling them at 10 you would buy the same number of shares only for $3, and then you would return those shares to the investor that you borrowed them from, and of course, you would you would pocket the difference. So in this case, that would be $7 per share, $10 um, with being the initial price that you entered into the short at, and then $3 being the price that you covered the short at.
0: Yeah, I can see some of our uh, listeners are I'm picturing some of them and their eyes glazing over. It does sound a little bit complicated for most investors, but it's great information. Uh, I'd agree. Uh, most investors really shouldn't consider this type of transaction, just your average uh, Joe Q public investor. Um, we would... We don't advise our clients short stocks uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, one thing that is important to mention as well is that the maximum return that a short investor could make, in your example, if the stock went from $10 to zero, that's 100% as a maximum return. But if you're really wrong on the short call, the stock could go up to say 20 to 100 to even $1,000 in an extreme case or more. Uh, And if that were to happen, then your loss is theoretically unlimited. Now, this is the exact opposite of buying a stock or taking a long position where the maximum loss, assuming that you're buying shares with cash and not debt, um, which is what we advise, uh, is 100%, but the potential gain is unlimited. And we like unlimited gains. And that is uh, the right, is the one, one of the big reasons right there that we would never advise our clients to short a stock or a market because the return distributions are skewed against you as an investor. And of course, the other reason is it's just a complicated trade for the average investor. Uh, Overcomplicating investments typically just causes problems and it is also unnecessary. Great returns can be generated from keeping investments simple and understandable. And that's the focus, really, one of the focuses of our podcast. This is actually one of the foundations of Warren Buffett's strategy and he is considered by most the best and most successful investor in the history of uh, planet Earth. So I think Warren does know a lot in this area and we kind of try to follow his strategies.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly, and if, if an investor is successful as Warren Buffett with those types of resources says stay away from complicated investments, then you should, you should take that advice because if he doesn't understand them, then, then, you know, most people don't stand a chance. But
0: Yeah, and we're talking about for the average investor here.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and really what I think is the most important takeaway from from the movie The Big Short is that in the world of investing and in finance, complication kills. There's no need to overcomplicate investments, and when you do, problems happen. Very few people at the time understood what those financial products really were, or what were inside of them um, that were causing the bubble, and... When I say very few people, I mean very few professionals, so-called professionals. You know, Big institutions were buying them and, and essentially having no, no clue. I, it, to, to just kind of summarize it all in, in, in a nutshell in terms of what was going on, you, you had banks and brokerages that were making money hand over fist, buying um, types of debt like mortgages, but other types of debt like student loans, credit cards, car loans, basically anything. They would take these debt instruments, they would combine them together, mix them up, repackage them, slice them up. Um, and basically sell them as some other type of security. Some of the names, there's, there's all sorts of different ones, like mortgage-backed securities, um, MBS, uh, MBSs, um, collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, There there is lots of them. They, they, would, they would sell these complicated um, instruments. They'd basically intentionally make them complicated with these tranching structures, and they would put insurance on them to make bad debt look good. Um, they would essentially pay for debt ratings and, and attach those. And with the with the objective of just basically obscuring the actual asset that you're buying. You're, you're buying an investment that um, that doesn't you don't really know what you're buying, you don't know what the asset is. And and, and that's always going to be a recipe for disaster, no matter no matter who you are. You know, and that's why we've always we've always supported, you know, focus on just looking at investments simply. Um, buying a company that's generating positive cash flow and a company with a business model that that you understand. But but anyways, back to the point of this. You know, eventually they kept doing this. The banks were making so much money and they ran out of actual debt to, to repackage and sell. So then they took it further and they started um, selling and packaging these synthetic products that really didn't have any real assets inside of them at all. And the analogy in the movie that was, that was used to explain the synthetic products is you have Selena Gomez in Las Vegas at a blackjack table. Okay.
0: L- yeah, can I yeah. stalk you there for one sec? You never told me that Selima Gomez is in the movie. Now we know why you saw it. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, she, she, she the was. Only in the only reason for about five seconds. <laughs> That's enough for you. Exactly, yeah. Um, better than nothing, I suppose. So I digress. So she's at the blackjack table. She's winning on um, blackjack. Hundreds of people watching, of course, and she puts down a bet. And as she's putting down bets because she's winning, other people who are watching are making their own wagers on whether or not she's going to win. And this basically continues, and so essentially, you know, if she's betting ten million on a hand of blackjack, there could be actually a billion dollars in off the book bets that were hinging on the outcome of her hand, and that's that's basically how this thing just ballooned up as it just it just got out of control, and of course.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a pretty good example, and of course we all know how that turned out, right?
1: Yeah, really. How else could it have turned out? I I, I won't bother going into more detail of the movie. People can see it if they want, but like I said, the 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 premise to me is that. Um, if you don't understand investment, investing things you don't understand is just always going to lead to to financial ruin. And it may not happen this year. It may not happen next year. But eventually, it's going to happen. When you see people starting to get too greedy, when returns have been coming too easily, and and certainly when products are getting more complicated, you know that it's typically around that time that um, that you're likely going to see some type of market correction or even a crash, depending on how how frothy things would become. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're saying time the markets, but If everybody else is in a frenzy to buy stocks, maybe that's a time for you to actually sit back and not buy stocks and even take some profits on some things that you own that that have done well.
0: Yeah, and we love to do that. Uh, Of course, there are market crashes and corrections, and they're very difficult, if not impossible, to time accurately. But there are some simple strategies that investors can use to help protect themselves and even use market corrections to their advantage and we do that all the time um, with our clients. I mean, I I remember after the 2008-2009 crisis, um, in that year, uh, I think we recommended seven individual individual stocks. Um, From the bottom and the next six months after, uh, about the end of September, uh, we recommended 15 individual stocks. Not because we're tremendously prescient in, our, in the way we look at the markets, uh, because we found more value then. And if you're looking fundamentally and you're looking at cheap stocks, that's the time to buy them. Good companies at cheap prices. Uh, the fundamentals told us to buy more companies then, not uh, some bet on the grand scheme of the markets going uh, higher long term. It was just there was more value then we tend to buy more stocks uh, when there is more value and that's when the market is down and less stocks when the markets are up and that keeps it very simple and it's been successful over time.
1: I'm going to add to that too, not only were we seeing more value on a, in terms of the numbers fundamentally, but they, we were seeing value in companies that, that we thought were not going to be um, affected by a recession that much, like companies that have very, had a very robust business model and and that's the whole point: is that there are there are those opportunities out there, particularly when the market is, is fearful, like it was at the time. So, just just for example, companies um, that were uh, providing linen cleaning services, a company providing linen cleaning cleaning services for the um, for for the healthcare industry in Canada, like that was just something that was growing. It had no debt. It, it didn't have really any financial risk um, in and of itself, and it had long term contracts that were supporting cash flow. And at the time, you could get that that kind of a company for a steal.
0: Yeah, it was trading at Book Valley. I remember the company that you're talking about uh, at then. We have a current recommendation on it for our current clients, so we're probably not going to mention the name right now. But, you know, in future shows, like, we can make a show note here to talk about, you know, just really basic businesses that we've bought over the years, not the sexiest stories on the street, but basic businesses that, you know, are relatively recession-resistant that uh, have produced tremendous returns over time. And you know the fact that we love those type of stories and uh, we can uh, highlight those to some of our listeners in, in an upcoming show. So we'll make a show note on that. Now I'm going to get into a rant, as I like to. get angry every week at something, if not one thing. I get angry at a lot of things, but um, uh, I can put it into a rant and vent it out here. It's time it's for time. Ryan's, Ryan's Rant. rant. Now, Crescent Point is a growth-by-acquisition North American light and medium oil producer. Now, it may not be a household name, but it's become a darling of Bay Street analysts for about a decade now, and not a week goes by when it is talked about favorably on BNN, or Canada's Financial News Network, if you're not familiar with it. Now, the stock over the last 10 years is down 14%. Now, over the last five years, it's down over 56%. Now, the telling point here is that even when oil prices were soaring and consistently above $90 and $100 a barrel between 2009 and 2014, Crescent Point itself flatlined. And yet analysts on Bay Street continued to foam at the mouth whenever this stock was mentioned. So, I mean, if we look up Reuters right now, which currently counts around 18 analysts covering the stock... um, I'm gonna ask you, Aaron, how many do you think give it a positive rating of those 18 analysts? Well,
1: I've been I've been hearing commentary on on this company for for a long time, probably better part of a decade, anyways. And I know every time somebody mentions it, they seem to say something positive. So I'm gonna say it's high. I'm gonna say
0: 75%. Yeah, and, and that would be high, but there is a typical bias on Wall Street towards giving more buy recommendations than sell, obviously. Um In this case, it's even higher than that. It's 15 out of the 18. 83% with buy or outperform ratings. Outperform is a rating big bank analysts give a stock when they know it's not really a buy in most cases, but they do not want to pee off the investment banking division or their investment banking division and Crescent Points Management, uh, who are actually a client of the bank. Now, this is the key point as to why we don't see many uh, or we've seen so many, sorry, positive ratings on Crescent Point over the past decade. This is not a stock that continually, this is a stock that continually enriches management and Bay Street. It's not about past performance of this company. I remind you that again, over the past 10 years, investors have lost money on the stock. and in the past five years alone, your investment in this company has been cut in half. However, the market cap or the value the market assigns the company has increased over a thousand percent. So you're saying, wait, the stock is down over the past ten years, but the market cap is up over a thousand percent? How is that possible? Well, it's simple. Like the Federal Reserve in the U.S., it it prints money. Crescent Brandt Point is a, a share printing machine, essentially. In fact, over the past 10 years, the share count has increased from 41 million to over half a billion. That is an 1100% increase in shares. So the share count goes up to fund expansion, but existing shareholders lose because per share cash flow growth is non-existent. But the company is bigger, right? Well, not on a per share basis, which is the only thing that really matters to shareholders and what drives stock prices. That's why we haven't seen a, you know, a tremendous share price increase in Crescent Point. Uh, Contrary to that, we've seen a decline in the price over the past 10 years. But for Bay Street, the company is is an absolute cash cow. And the street has been milking this cow for over a decade, clipping millions of dollars from their financing fees and then placing the poor performing shares with their individual clients. Now, the secret here is The real client for Bay Street is Crescent Point, and as long as the company keeps issuing shares, you will see more positive recommendations from Bay Street analysts, but you won't see them from us. We don't see the company as an investment that's worthy of your dollars. Uh, Now the stock also pays a dividend, and I just wanted to note this. It's yielding right now around 4.4% at present and many investors have bought this stock for the dividend over the past 10 years because they've been told it's a relatively safe dividend. Uh, We do not view commodity-based businesses such as oil producers as good long-term dividend vehicles due to the highly fluctuative nature of energy prices and we've seen that obviously over the last several years. Now, Crescent Point has cut its monthly payment from 23 cents per share to 10 cents per share uh, I did this back in August so just about a year ago in March of this year Crescent Point again slashed its monthly payout from 10 cents that it had cut to to 3 cents per share the dividend now over the past year has been cut 87 percent now the payout ratio on this company has often been above hundred percent again we would not invest in this company for the dividend we don't see the company as a, as a solid long-term investment, and we do not rate it a buy at this point, and I don't think we ever would.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, that sums things up pretty well. So, in other words, you, you love it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm very fond of Crescent Point, and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe there's a the case for the big short, right? Why don't you tell us what you really think about it? But, I think, but, but that's another story. We don't recommend shorts on companies. It's just not a company that we'd be investing in at this stage. Now I'm going to get into our segment, one-on-one. One stock you heard about this week that you should ignore, and another stock that you did not hear about but should really pay some attention to. Essentially, we're flipping convention or mass financial media on its ear, pointing to the over-reported stories out on stocks that offer little value to you as an investor and highlighting under-reported stocks and financial stories that can actually have a meaningful impact on your portfolio stars and Dog segment it's time for this week's dog so the first company this week that we're going to talk about is WestJet and the funny thing here is uh, I actually like the company relatively speaking it's probably one of the better run airlines I've ever flown on um, might be the best of a sorry lot but it's still one of the better that I've flown on uh, but I would not buy the stock. Now that's not a comment on management who I think have done a pretty good job overall or the strategy of the business which I think is well thought out and one that is reasonably successful or even the philosophy behind the company. It's just that air travel is a bloody terrible business. It is a commoditized service with zero pricing power and razor thin margins. Now your major inputs Uh, are the cost of commodities, which you have absolutely no control over, and your labor costs are typically, in a company like this, they're unionized or you're paying a premium. Uh, WestJet was in the news this week after the company reported that glitches on its London route caused profits in the quarter to drop 40%. The company had to cancel a few routes, uh, and European laws require that the airline completely compensate passengers based on the distance of the flight, now, it is one of the pitfalls of operating an older fleet, one that they just had purchased. Um, there's problems with the planes. They have to cancel a route, and uh, on those routes, they have to completely compensate. Adding salt to the wound, Discount Airlines service New Leaf celebrated its inaugural flight from Hamilton, Ontario, uh, Monday morning this week, adding some competition to the Canadian airline market. So Canada's friendly skies have become more crowded. now. WestJet is fairly well-run business, but there's, you know, there's, just so, there's many reasons that developed nations have only one main airline with a rotating series of competitors. It's because airline travel is, is considered a public good, meaning you almost want the government to provide it to you at a fair price. That industry is not a long-term, a good long-term industry to invest in. And uh, from our perspective, we're not buying WestJet right now. We're not buying any airline stock.
1: No, if you look at if you look at any research long-term on on investor returns from the airline industry, whether in Canada, the the U.S., or or even in Europe as well. They, they just don't generate value over time. They're not long-term investments. They're, they're not value generators over time. They're just the trades, and that's, that's a, a tough trade at the time.
0: From our Stars and Dogs segment, it's time for this week's Star.
1: For something a little more positive here, the company that you should be paying attention to, A&W Royalty Revenue Royalty Fund. Uh, the, the symbol is A W U N. They just put out their second quarter results yesterday. Same store sales growth was two point seven percent for the quarter and five point five percent year to date. And revenue for this for the six months increased twelve percent. So most people are going to be familiar with this with this fast food brand, uh, the the world famous uh, root beer, the, the bear. Um, but what we're concerned about is, is how they're making money and, and how the business model works for, for AW.UN is they don't actually own the restaurants you buy your burgers from. They own an interest in the trademark that generates a small royalty off of every dollar product sold in these restaurants. So top line, they get a piece of that top line a royalty from the top line. Don't have to worry about it, uh, expenses. And this has generally been a very uh, stable business model as long as the underlying asset is sound and in this case, Once again, a very understandable business. We recommended this company um, actually way back in 2009 when it was trading at $14 and yielding 10%. Today it trades for $35 and yields 4.5%. We did sell it in 2013 at $22, so we did get out a little bit early, but it was a great profit for our clients who bought it, and you never go broke taking a profit even if it is early. The reason that we did get out of the stock at the time was primarily valuation. We thought it was getting a little bit pricey, but what's been driving the share price since then um, is very impressive same store sales growth. They've been inc- increasing the number of restaurants in the royalty pool, but perhaps more importantly than that is the same store sales growth, which has been in the in the um, high single to low double digits um, for the last couple, couple of years here. And management attributes this to a strategy that the company's undertaken um, to um, only use meat that's that's been grown um, the antibiotic free and and cage free eggs and and other, you know, health conscious attributes like that. So they've really been trying to build an image as being a more health conscious fast food company. And so far that, that appears to be working. The valuation today is about 21 times, maybe 22 times earnings, which given their growth rate is still a little bit rich for our, our value based growth at a reasonable price strategy, but it is a very solid stock and another good example of a simple business that produces value for shareholders. Year after year, and certainly we're watching it. Um, we think other investors should too, and if we can get in at a at a slightly better price, then we we could choose to do that.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, I think you summed that up quite well. Uh, and I think their branding towards the health conscious uh, side of the business um, in that area has was well done and and really hit the mark. I mean, I know just anecdotally, I don't go to a lot of fast food restaurants. We don't. Um, but we will stop in at a because of the fact that, like you said, they antib- antibiotic-free meat, which, you know, means a lot. And if you're on the go and you need to stop somewhere, uh, that versus, say, McDonald's, uh, a looks like, at this point, the, um, the better option. And they make damn good root beer, like we said. So... Uh,
1: and one more thing, one more thing just about the industry is the fast food industry is, is fairly, very defensive as well. So, in times of economic contraction, fast food restaurants typically do a lot better than than other types of restaurants. It's cheap. Uh, there's lots of calories in it. So, it's just an efficient way to eat when you're not making a lot of money.
0: It's an excellent point. And we're going to close out this week by saying… Um For our segment next week, Your Stock, Our Take, We uh, feel free to send in your questions to us. Either uh, tweet them to us or uh, go to our website www.keystocks.com and uh, just uh, contact us and ask a question on your stock and we'd be happy to answer it next week. Uh, Come back often and add the podcast to your RRS feed or you can find it at iTunes or on our website again at www.keystocks.com. Thanks again, Aaron, this week and uh, profitable investing to all you out there.